Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast from the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. What if you woke up one day to find that your friends and family weren't really your friends and family? You couldn't quite put your finger on what was different, but you could tell just by looking at them. This wasn't your mother, your brother, or even your dog, though they looked just alike. These were imposters. You were certain of it. It may sound like something out of a sci-fi movie, but it's not. It's a real condition known as Capgras syndrome, one of the many peculiar brain disorders profiled by neurologist V.S. Ramachandran in his book, The Telltale Brain. In the book, Ramachandran looks back over his most unbelievable case studies of patients with abnormal brain functioning, or at least almost unbelievable. From patients who suffer from Capgras syndrome to those who see musical notes in vivid color, a phenomenon known as synesthesia, he uses each seemingly anomalous case study to tease out a greater understanding of what it is to be human overall. Ramachandran came to the Academy this March to offer a few of his most telling tales of the abnormal brain. In this edition of our monthly podcast, we offer you an abridged version of that talk, but you can download the full lecture online at scienceandthecity.org. So this young man was in a car accident. He was actually a student of mine. He was in a car accident. He was in coma for two weeks. Came out of the coma and seemed quite normal. He was a little bit slowed down. Speech was slurred. He had dysarthria. But overall, he was mentally quite normal. Willing to play chess with me. He was laughing. He was joking. Reading the newspaper. Nothing wrong with his vision. Emotionally not disturbed in any way. But he would look at his mother and he would say, that looks exactly like my mother. So in a sense, he quote-unquote recognizes his mother. But it's not my mother. She's some other woman, some strange woman pretending to be my mother. She's an imposter. This is the so-called imposter delusion or Capgras syndrome, named over 100 years ago. Okay, so what causes this? Now, believe it or not, the standard explanation of the Capgras syndrome is a Freudian one. And that is, when this chap was a little baby, a tiny little infant, he had a strong sexual attraction to his mother, the so-called Oedipus complex of Freud. I'm not saying I believe this, but that's the sort of Freudian view. And then, as the cortex develops, it inhibits these latent sexual urges towards the mother. Thank God, otherwise you'd be sexually aroused when you saw your mother. And then comes a blow to the head, bang, damaging the cortex, and these latent sexual urges come flaming to the surface, and suddenly this chap finds himself being sexually aroused by his mother, and he's very disturbed by this, and he says, my God, if this is my mom, how come I'm being sexually turned on? This must be some other woman pretending to be my mother. Now, this is a very ingenious explanation, <laughs> as indeed all Freudian explanations are, as you all know as New Yorkers, right? Um, but it doesn't work, because I've seen the same syndrome in a patient who had a delusion about his pet poodle, saying, doctor, this dog looks just like Fifi, but in fact it's not Fifi, it's some other dog. Now, how do you explain this with a Freudian view? I mean, you'd have to invoke the latent bestiality in all people or some such nonsense. So we came up with a much simpler explanation. We said, normally visual information from the eyeballs goes to the back of the brain, and that is analyzed into the basic features like color and motion and depth and orientation. And after all the subsequent analysis has been done in over 20 or 30 areas in the brain, mostly in the back of the brain, messages cascade into the fusiform gyrus, where you recognize the significance of what you're looking at. Is this, is this a lion or a tiger? Is it my boss? Is it a potential prey? 
or is it a potential mate I should, whom I should pursue, or is it something utterly insignificant like a piece of driftwood or a piece of chalk or something unimportant like that. So from the visual areas, it goes into the fusiform gyrus where you recognize the object, and then it gets, goes to the amygdala, which is in the front pole of the temporal lobes, where you gauge the emotional significance that you're looking at, and if it's something very significant, predator, prey, or mate, or boss, the messages then cascade into the hypothalamic nuclei down the autonomic nervous system, and then preparing your body for action, your heart starts beating faster, pumping more blood, your blood pressure goes up, and you also start sweating. And the reason for that is to dissipate heat, anticipating the muscular exertion. So now that's a normal sequence of events. Now what happened in the Kampkra patient, uh, the idea that Bill Hurstein and I came up with, and independently by uh, Young and Ellis in England, was that what happens is the messages get analyzed in the fusiform diet. The fusiform diet itself is completely normal. That's why the guy says, it looks like my mother, doctor. But the wire that goes from there to the amygdala has been cut by the accident. Therefore, he looks at his mother and he recognizes her. Appropriate semantic links are evoked. He knows who his mother is. But there's no appropriate warmth or terror, as the case may be, because the connections from the fusiform to the amygdala have been severed by the accident. And therefore, since there's no warmth, the guy, the delusion kicks in. He says, this can't be my mother. If it's my mother, why am I not feeling any, any fuzzy sensations? Now, how do you test this? Well, what we did was to put him in, in front of a machine, in front of a computer screen, showed him all, all sorts of images. And if I take any one of you here and put you in front of a com computer and show you different images like tigers and lions and pigs and chairs and donkeys and pieces of wood and whatever, or strangers versus your mother or father, measure your level of emotional arousal by measuring the skin change in skin resistance produced by the sweating. So I put two electrodes on the palm and measure the galvanic skin response and that tells me how emotionally aroused you are when you look at something. What you find is for tables and chairs and pigs, there's no galvanic response. For something like a lion, there's a huge big jolt in the galvanic response. And believe it or not, if you look at your mother, everybody here, you look at your mother, you start sweating. You don't even have to be Jewish. And you get a huge big jolt in your galvanic skin response. But what happens to this patient is astonishing. You get no galvanic skin response to strangers. That's not surprising. It's to be expected. Not a pieces of wood or paper. But if you show him his mother, there is no galvanic skin response. It's absolutely flat. The other thing we observed was when the mother goes to the adjacent room and phones David after an hour and says, David, how are you? David immediately says, Mom, how are you? It's so good to hear from you. Where have you been? The delusion vanishes and he recognizes her instantly from the voice. How is this possible? Well, the reason is there's a separate pathway going from the auditory cortex, superior temporal gyrus, down to the amygdala. And this is not some conceptual pathway. This has actually been traced anatomically, goes to the amygdala, and that wire has not been cut by the accident. Therefore, when he listens to his mother's voice on the phone, the warmth kicks in immediately, the, the emotions kick in, and he says, Mom, how are you? But when he looks at her, then the delusion kicks in. He says, who are you? So this is a lovely example of what, what we call cognitive neuroscience, because... It's an example of how you can play detective on these patients. Take a completely incomprehensible, bizarre neuropsychiatric syndrome where a person says his mother is an imposter while looking at her but not on the phone. Okay? It sounds crazy. But then you can discard the Freudian explanation and then come up with a theory based on the known anatomical connections in the brain and then test it using a one-hour experiment and show that you're on, you're on the right track. In his next case study, Ramachandran came against a slightly more familiar anomaly. Phantom limb syndrome. Everybody here knows what a phantom limb is. If you amputate an arm, you, you continue to vividly feel the presence of that missing arm. And you can amputate most parts of the body, a leg or an arm is the most common, 
And 98% of patients after arm amputation or leg amputation experience a vivid phantom. Okay? So you can get a phantom with almost any part of the body. Arms are common, legs are common. You can even get a phantom uterus after hysterectomy, including phantom menstrual cramps at the appropriate time every month, believe it or not. But what if your phantom limb was more of a problem than a few cramps once a month? For many people who experience phantom limbs, those limbs cause excruciating pain. But in one of his most famous experiments, Dr. Ramachandran came up with a pretty interesting way of alleviating that pain. An amputation of the phantom limb. It's a sort of smoke and mirrors trick, though less smoke and more mirrors. About half the patients with phantom limbs will say they can move their phantom. It'll wave goodbye, it'll shake hands, it'll answer the phone, so on and so forth. So they get very vivid movement sensations. But in half of them, they'll say the phantom is paralyzed in an awkward, painful position. And they'll mimic the position with the other hand and show you. And they'll say, I cannot even mimic it, doctor, because the hand is hyperextended and going backwards and touching my wrist, which is anatomically impossible and it's very painful. And I can't show it to you with this hand. If only I could move my hand, it might relieve the pain. When the people with the phantom limb that's paralyzed, what I found was many of them, not all of them, but many of them, had a pre-existing paralysis of a real intact arm because the nerves were yanked off the spinal cord the arm was lying paralyzed in a sling and excruciatingly painful. And then the arm was amputated to relieve the pain, and then he stuck with a paralyzed phantom limb in a phantom sling. So my reasoning was when the arm was intact and paralyzed and painful, every time the brain sent a command saying move, it's getting a visual signal saying no, it's not moving. Move, no, move, no, move, no. This gets learned by the brain and creates a phenomenon called learned paralysis, probably in the right frontoparietal region. Now when you amputate the arm, this learned paralysis gets carried over into the phantom. So the person is stuck with a phantom in an awkward position, frozen in a specific position. I'm skipping several steps here, but that's approximately what's going on. So then I said, what if you give him visual feedback that the phantom is now obeying his command again? So you unlearn the learned paralysis. It's kind of a zany idea, but I said, why not try it? Right? Well, how do you unlearn the learned paralysis? You, you need, you, he has to send a command to the phantom and then see the phantom obeying his command. Well, he doesn't have an arm. How can he see it obeying his command? So then I said, let's use virtual reality. So I called Christoph Koch at Caltech. And then we talked about it. He said it'll cost about $2 million to set it up. And I said, forget that. And then we, we, then we hit on the idea of using a $2 mirror. So all you do is you put a mirror on the table in a cardboard box in front of the patient. The mirror is propped up vertically. The patient then puts his phantom, say, phantom left arm on the left side of the mirror and his real right arm on the right side of the mirror, mimicking posture, the felt posture of the phantom, and looks inside the mirror at the reflection of the normal hand, superimposed optically on the felt position of the phantom limb. Now if he sends mirror symmetric commands while looking in the mirror, he's going to see his phantom obeying his command if he does this, or does that, or does that, or clenches and unclenches his hand while looking in the mirror. The phantom isn't going to obey his command in real time. So I had the first patient coming in, who 11 years prior to my seeing him, had a brachial plexus evulsion or lesion, paralyzing his arm, for one year, it was paralyzed, lying in a sling, and painful. After one year, it was amputated. He was stuck with a phantom limb, equally painful, and a phantom sling for the previous 10 years prior to my testing him. So I came, he came into the office, and he said, Oh, I read about your phantom limb stuff, and, I'm very, and I, I hope you can help me. My pain is excruciating. I, I've actually lost my job, and I'm very depressed. It's been going on for 10 years. And I said, Okay, well, let's, let's see what we can do. Can you move your phantom? He said, No, my phantom won't budge. It's paralyzed. And I get up in the morning, it's in this position. It's a funny position, like this. And I, I wish I could move it because it's extraordinarily painful. And the guy tried to move it and show me, and he started sweating. It was so painful. So then I said, okay, let's put you in this box and put, look at the reflection of the normal arm. And he started chuckling. He said, oh, that's funny. I can see my phantom. 
Now, he's not stupid. He knows it's not come back, but it's a very compelling visual illusion. Then I say, okay, now move both your hands while looking in the mirror. That's important. He said, no, I can't do that. I can move my normal hand, but you know I can't move my phantom. I said, try it anyway. Pretend it's ESP. Look inside. And he does this, and he says, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. My phantom is moving. It's unclenching and clenching. It's moving, waving, and all of that. For the first time in 10 years, I'm experiencing movements in my phantom. Not merely seeing it move, but actually feeling movement. And it feels so good, it removes my pain and liberates and animates my phantom. And I said, okay, close your eyes. Oop, it's stuck again. It doesn't move. Open your eyes. Oh, my God, oh, my God, it's moving, it's moving. And it feels wonderful. It feels delightful. But then I said to myself, this supports my idea of critical role of visual feedback. That's a recurring theme in the book critical role of visual feedback in neurorehabilitation. But I'm not going to get a prize for getting somebody to move a phantom limb. It's a completely useless ability, if you think about it. But then I said, maybe other types of paralysis you see in stroke and in other areas of neurology may also have a learned component. It may be a temporary immobilization, which you can overcome. But the guy can't keep carrying a mirror around. So I said, take it home, practice with it for a few weeks. So he took it home. I'm not going to go into the details. And after a week or two, he phones me up all agitated. And he says on the, on the phone, I said, what's going on, Derek? He says, you're not going to believe this. This is gone. And I said, what's gone? I thought the mirror box was gone. He said, no, my phantom has disappeared. The one I have had for the last 10 years has vanished. And, and I said, does this bother you? Because I was worried about human subjects and ethics and all that. He said, no, on the contrary, last four days, you know, this phantom has disappeared. And all this excruciating pain I used to get in the thumb, index finger, and elbow, that pain is gone because I don't have an arm. So I don't have phantom pain. But... My fingers, my phantom fingers are still there dangling from my shoulder, but your, but your mirror box doesn't reach it. So can you redesign it, put it, on, put it on my head or something, make the thing reach it? Lastly, we'll take a look at a different kind of phenomenon. This one, genetic. Synesthesia is a long-known condition that causes people to mix up their senses. For instance, every time they see a number, they see an associated color. Or maybe they see colors for when they hear musical notes instead. So five is red, six is blue, seven is chartreuse, eight is indigo, nine is yellow, F sharp is blue, C sharp is green, and so on and so forth. And there are dozens of, hundreds of case studies of people with synesthesia. And it's also been noticed that synesthesia is eight times more common among artists, poets, and novelists than in the general population. So, it's, so you've got many pieces of this mystery. Why would some people see five as red and six as blue? Why would it be much more common among artists, poets, and novelists? So here, here you can play Sherlock Holmes. You can start with all these bits and pieces of a puzzle. And by the way, in the last 100 years since it was reported, it's by and large been ignored by mainstream neuroscience. The three standard theories of synesthesia that have been around is, one theory is they're just crazy. And what do you mean five is red or C sharp is blue? Well, that's not a theory. So, so let's, let's throw it away. The second argument has been that they are acid junkies and potheads. And, and sure enough, this may be true because it's much more common in Berkeley than in UCSD. But again, that makes it more interesting. Why should LSD promote synesthesia? The third idea is they're playing with refrigerator magnets as children. So five was red, six was blue, seven is green. And they're stuck with these memories. Well, this doesn't make any sense. But why, is it, why don't we all have it then, A? And B, why is, it, why is it run in families? You have to say the same magnets are being transmitted generation to generation. So, you know, just common sense. The fourth theory is more ingenious, and the claim is that they're being metaphorical. And they see F sharp is blue, or C sharp is green or five is red, or five, six is green for that matter. Well, I didn't like this theory because you can't solve one mystery in science with another mystery. Saying, oh, synesthetes, they're just being metaphorical. It doesn't solve anything because what the hell is a metaphor? We don't know how a metaphor is represented in the brain. So the first thing we wanted to show was these people are not crazy. So how do you show that? We devised a very simple test. And we found a couple of students in my lab, sorry, in my class, 
where two was red and five was green, or the other way around. We created a matrix of fives. Scattered among them, there are some twos forming a shape, either a square or a triangle or a rectangle. And the guy has to tell you what shape it is. And when you and I look at it, non-synesthetes look at it, it takes ages. You say, well, that's a two. Where's the other two? Well, there's a two there. There's a two there. It takes 20, 30 seconds to discern the shape. A synesthetes looks at it and he says, oh, I see a red triangle upside down. And he sees it much faster in a matter of seconds. So if they're crazy, how come they're better at it than us? And this is only seen in a subset of synesthetes, by the way. We are lucky to find that subset called lower synesthetes or front-end synesthetes. And sure enough, when we did the brain imaging on these synesthetes, Air Hubbard and I were struck by the fact that the color area was in the fusiform gyrus, V4, and the number area is right next to it in the fusiform gyrus, in, right next to the color area. We said, well, this can't be a coincidence. The number and color area are right next to each other in the brain. And the most common type of synesthesia is number to color synesthesia. So maybe, like in the phantom limb patient, the face activating the hand, maybe in this case, there's cross-wiring, accidental cross-wiring between number and color. So every time he sees a number, corresponding color is evoked, hence synesthesia. And then we did brain imaging experiments. If you show a normal person a uh, black and white number, only the number area lights up. If you show him colored numbers, number and color lights up. If you show synesthesia, black and white numbers, number and color area lights up. So we did this experiment about seven or eight years ago. Now people have done DT imaging, actually shown more extra wires in the fusiform gyrus in these synesthetes. So we know for sure it's probably the right theory and account for this. Now, why would this excess wiring occur? That gets interesting. It's because I think the clue comes from the fact that it runs in families. But when you're infants, when you're in a fetus, everything is connected to everything. There's a tremendous redundancy of connections in the brain. That's an overstatement, but it's approximately true. And these excess connections are then pruned away by pruning genes or whittled away to create the characteristic modular architecture of the adult brain. So you get a number module, color module, face module, and so on and so forth. Now, if the pruning gene is defective, there's defective pruning between adjacent brain areas, in this, color, in this case number and color. So if the pruning, defective pruning gene or synesthetic mutation is expressed selectively in the fusiform as a result of transcription factors, which can happen, then you get a number color synesthesia. Every time he sees a number, he sees a color. On the other hand, here's a bigger puzzle. So you say, well, so what? You've shown that synesthetes have cross-wiring, so big deal. Right? So that's a very important, important question. Remember I said it's eight times more common in artist poets and novelists. Well, here's the clue to the mystery. What do artist poets and com uh, uh, poets, artists have in common and novelists have in common? They're very good at metaphor, linking seemingly unrelated ideas and concepts. When Shakespeare said, it is the yeast and Juliet is the sun, you don't say Juliet is a glowing ball of fire. Actually, schizophrenics say that, but it's another lecture. <laughs> you say she's warm like the sun, nurturing like the sun, radiant like the sun, glowing like the sun, so on and so forth. Your brain instantly finds all these links between a celestial body and a young, young woman. Right? Shakespeare, of course, was a master at this. So my argument is if high-level concepts and ideas are also distributed in far-flung brain regions, and, and if the same gene, synesthesia gene, expressed more diffusely throughout the brain, you get a greater propensity to link seemingly unrelated ideas, hence a greater facility and propensity with metaphorical thinking, hence the eight times higher incidence of synesthesia among artists, poets, and novelists. In other words, this gene, synesthesia gene, or set of genes, why did they survive? Why would one out of 50 people have synesthesia? Completely useless ability, seeing five as red and six as green. This ability would have been, this gene would have been weeded out by natural selection, the genetic drift hundreds of thousands of years ago, but it's persisted. It's persisted because it's got a hidden agenda. Hidden agenda is it makes some outliers in the population more creative, more metaphorical, and that's, that's why the gene has survived. For more from Dr. Ramachandran, visit our website, www.scienceandthecity.org. 
Science in the City is a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this podcast, as well as the rest of our programming. As always, we love your feedback. So shoot us an email to scienceinthecity at nyas.org. Thanks for listening and see you next time.